0: One morning last June, Cynthia and I took a train to Chelmsford, which is a city just east of London in Essex. We got out of the station, we
1: looked around for a while until we found a man we'd never met before. We piled into his car and we had no clue where he was taking us.
2: Oh, it's, uh, you know, it's not not a massive secret as such. It's just that people think, you know, oh, there's a field of saffron, we can go and have some and, you know, make loads of money or whatever.
0: People think that because saffron is the world's most expensive spice. And saffron is what this episode is all about. It's our most bling episode yet.
1: You're listening to Gastropod, the podcast that looks at food through the lens of science and history. I'm Cynthia Graber. And I'm Nicola Twilley.
0: And although we can't tell you exactly where we went... This episode, we're chatting with a couple different saffron growers to understand why these little red strands are so expensive. We also explore the case of the disappearing saffron. Why was England
1: the center of saffron production in the Middle Ages, and why'd they stop growing it? And why might
0: eating too much saffron give you a serious case of the giggles? Hint, it's not just the shock of spending that much money. But first, where is your next meal coming from?
1: Try caviar. Caviar brings you food from all the best local restaurants. Order on the Caviar app or online at caviar.com and get the food you crave from pizza and Chinese to Indian, sushi, barbecue, get it all delivered. Order today and pay no delivery fee on your first order. Plus, take $10 off your first order of $30 or more with promo code GASTROPOD.
0: Also, exciting news. GASTROPOD is finally available on Stitcher Premium. Yes, that's right. From today, you can listen to all of our episodes ad-free and five exclusive bonus mini-episodes on Stitcher Premium. Just go to stitcherpremium.com gastropod and use promo code GASTROPOD to get one month free. And before we get back to Saffron, one more thing. February
1: 7th is our third ever live show at the Boston Museum of Science, and it just might be our best one yet. The museum hosted a lovely reception for us last year after the show, and they're doing the same this year, and it'll be great fun. For all the details on the interactive tastings and special guests we've got planned, as well as how to get tickets, go to gastropod.com and click on live events.
3: For us, probably the important thing about saffron is it's probably the most expensive spice in the world. Its retail value is estimated at
0: around $5,000 a pound. $19 $19 a gram. For reference, gold is currently trading at 42 bucks a gram. So saffron is only worth half its weight in gold. But that still makes it one of the most expensive foods in the world. Only things like truffles and caviar are really in the same league. Oh, and that, by the way... That was Margaret Skinner at the University of Vermont. And saffron is
1: definitely the most expensive spice. Most spices are around like five, ten bucks a pound. The second most expensive spice in the world is vanilla. You can find a pound of vanilla on Amazon for $600. Saffron is more than eight times that price. So, what
0: exactly is this fabulously expensive substance?
4: Saffron is the little Threads that are in a crocus.
0: Pat Willard wrote a book
1: called Secrets of Saffron, The Vagabond Life of the World's Most Seductive Spice. And those threads that she mentioned, those are from one particular kind of crocus known as, unsurprisingly, the
0: saffron crocus. It's like a little purple crocus, like a normal one. But now imagine an entire field of purple flowers, purple as far as the eye can see. And it's
1: not just beautiful to look at. These fields of flowers have an incredible smell, too. It's a
0: little musky, a little honeyed. And it's all the more gorgeous and intoxicating because these flowers are blooming against a backdrop of brown. Because the saffron crocus tends to grow in super arid parts of the world.
1: And the flowers bloom in the fall when there's almost nothing else
0: growing around them. Today, by far the most saffron comes from the sun-baked fields of Iran. But there is some mystery about where saffron originally comes from. Dave, who grows saffron in Essex at an undisclosed location, he says it comes from Greece.
2: Because there's a place called there with crocus called, with a K. And we think the saffron probably originated there as well. You can still find wild saffron growing in Greece.
1: Arash Al-Egalo Bebahani, he works with Margaret Skinner at the University of Vermont. He says there are some other
5: theories. In some part, people believe that it comes from India, south of Asia. Some people believe that the origin of this crop is from Persia or Iran. And the most strong theory or scenario says that it comes from Mediterranean region. As an Iranian, I like to say it comes from Iran.
0: Basically, choose your favorite theory, because we don't really know where saffron comes from. The earliest documentation of saffron comes from ancient Sumeria, which is a civilization that was based in what is now southern Iraq about 5,000 years ago. The Sumerians gathered wild saffron, and they made a gold-colored beer with it. They also offered it to their gods, and they sold it to their neighbors. By about 4,000 years ago, there were ancient Persians
1: in the general region as well, and they fell in love with saffron too. They also loved its golden color.
4: So they started using it as paint. You can see it in there. There were traces in their funeral processions and in cave art.
1: Saffron dye brightened the ancient Persians' thick rugs and they also used it in perfume. Pat says the ancient Persians cooked with saffron too, so in turn did the ancient Greeks. And from Greece, saffron use kept spreading west. People all around the Mediterranean eventually ended up relying on saffron to color and flavor rice and broths and breads. Some of those dishes might be familiar to you all today. Risotto in Italy, bouillabaisse in southern France, paella in
0: Spain. But even back in the early, early days with the ancient Sumerians, and Greeks, saffron cost a pretty penny. So it was mostly enjoyed by the elites. One of
1: the reasons saffron has always been super pricey is that it's incredibly finicky. You have to pluck the flowers and carefully remove the three stigmas whole, totally intact from the center of the flower. And then you have to dry those super fine threads while not letting them crumble. This is really painstaking, time-consuming work.
4: There's nothing that um, has changed since the time that the Persians started using it because it Machines can't pick it. It's such a delicate process. So it's all done by hand, and that's pretty much what gives it its mystery, but also gives it its expense.
0: So you might be thinking, well, sure, it can't be harvested by machines. That makes sense of why it's so expensive now. But it's not like there were combine harvesters in ancient Greece. Everything was being picked by hand. So why was it so expensive then?
1: It is still more fiddly than most other spices. Some herbs, like oregano and thyme and rosemary, you just pick them. Other spices, like cumin, you dry the plants and then beat them to get the seeds out. So it's always been a lot more work to carefully remove all those delicate little threads to harvest saffron than to harvest other spices.
0: And because you only use those three little red stigma at the center of the flower, and they weigh almost nothing, you have to pick something like 70,000 flowers to get one. One pound of saffron.
1: But Pat thinks there's more to it than that. She says saffron's allure and value comes partly
0: because it's like Midas, it turns everything gold. The ancient Persians had figured this out long ago. They were using it to dye their precious rugs. But Pat says saffron wasn't just used to turn fabric yellow. The Minoans, that's another ancient civilization based on the Mediterranean island of Crete, they used saffron like Saint Tropez.
4: In ceremonies, they would just color, their skin, and that it became kind of this rosy glow for them.
1: The Egyptians also loved it as a particularly golden self-tanner.
4: There's a story that Cleopatra would bathe not only in in milk, that's the big legend, but also in saffron. And again, it would make her body just this glowing, tannish gold. And then the hero of my favorite saffron as
0: beauty product story, Alexander the Great. Saffron was basically like, touch of gold for this legendary Greek conqueror. The
4: whole idea was that he was a god and he had blonde hair. And if you have blonde hair and you wash it in saffron, it just heightens the color and it becomes this golden color. So as he was getting more and more famous in the legends and conquering the world, he would use it as a way to make himself look more and more like a god.
0: So basically, saffron turned everything gold, which is part of why it was pretty much worth its weight in gold. And like everything valuable, saffron has also always been a target for fraud. Sellers would bulk out their precious saffron with other, cheaper spices that also turned things yellow. Turmeric was one of the main ones, red marigold petals, even the inner threads of lily flowers. They substituted anything that could give it that golden color for less. But of course, the color wasn't as gorgeous, and
1: the flavor was just all wrong. In medieval times, the city of Nuremberg had become one of the biggest markets for trading goods from the Mediterranean all over Europe. So it was also the center of the saffron trade. And because the saffron fraud was so rampant, one of the very first laws passed in Nuremberg when the city first became independent was called the saffron It was passed in the 1300s, and it governed the inspection and purity of saffron.
4: And they were extremely... Um, strict about it and they would go about each day making sure that, go from you know cart to cart and stall to stall tasting each one, making sure that it was okay and if you were found to be not selling it right the conviction rate was just tremendous apparently and the punishment was very strict. They not only hung you but um, you know, chopped off your head and then there's these accounts that I heard uh, one particularly sorrowful one of A widow with children selling a small bit of saffron, and they buried her alive with the saffron. And that wasn't an uncommon thing. You got buried with your your imitation saffron.
0: So yeah, medieval Europeans took their saffron seriously. And they weren't the only ones. The people growing saffron throughout the Mediterranean and the Middle East, they were pretty serious about making sure no one else could grow it, too.
4: Because Saffron was so cherished in the Middle East and you know, in the Holy Lands particularly, they had a, a law that you couldn't take it out of the country. And if you were taking it out of the country. The penalties were quite stiff. You could get killed, you could get your hand cut off.
1: But there were some European warriors who were willing to risk their hands or their lives for the glory of spice gold. The crusaders marched to the Holy Land repeatedly over a couple hundred years. They were, you know, killing infidels like my people. But they were also being introduced to the flavors and smells and riches of the region. And like everyone else, they became infatuated with saffron.
4: So there's stories of the knights hiding it in the hilt of their their swords and one of the cool stories and it's sort of been verified but um of a not of a crusader coming in but of a pilgrim after the the holy lands were secure enough to travel bringing it home in a staff his walking staff and starting to cultivate it in in england and the
0: english royals they fell in love with it the same way Alexander the Great did. Henry VIII apparently used it to dye his tights a glorious gold, which he probably wore while he was dining on one of that era's most stupendous dishes, the golden
4: swan. Actually, one of my favorite recipes is this swan recipe. So it's sort of like a traducan, you know, they've kept stuffing more and more little animals into the swan. And then they would coat and make tons of coating of saffron on the, the white feathers until it really glowed. And they would carry this in as a ceremonial and, and land it before the, the king. And it was, it was the dish.
1: Nobody knows exactly how saffron first came to be grown in England. Maybe it was one of those pilgrims or crusaders, maybe not. But by the 1500s, the town of Cheeping Walden in England, that means Walden Market, it had become such a center of saffron that the name of the town was changed to Saffron Walden.
2: Saffron Walden was the biggest exporter of saffron in the world. And... In the texts, it does say it was the best saffron in the world, but they would say that, wouldn't they?
0: That is David Smale. You heard him right at the beginning of the show. He was the man who picked Cynthia and me up at a train station in Essex and took us to a secret location.
2: Where we're standing now, so people can work out where we're growing it now, can't they? But uh, We are literally under seven miles from the driest spot in England. So uh, we're a little bit out of saffron wolden, obviously, here not giving anything away but
1: <laughs> Dave is growing saffron in England today that's why the site is so secret and he's growing it here because this was the epicenter of saffron internationally hundreds of years ago
2: they were called saffron gardens which we still use a terminology for this probably because they were never that big so uh, and they would have been run by families or small farmsteads really but literally everywhere it was growing everywhere in the churchyard even stuff like that so at that time of year You know, you read things in the text that the whole town was awash, the streets were awash with purple petals and stuff, you know. So it must have been amazing.
0: So remember how we told you that saffron likes to grow in arid lands? Right. So England is not typically considered particularly arid. In fact, my homeland has a little bit of a reputation for being just the tiniest bit soggy. But saffron walden, like Dave said, it is in the driest part of the UK. And besides, Dave thinks that whole saffron loves dry conditions thing is overrated.
2: There's a bit of a mythology about saffron, if you look around the world now, that you think it's a crop that should be grown in very infertile soil and up in the mountains or it's stuff. But I think it's more, from my experience, it's they grow it there because that nothing else will grow there. And it's a good cash crop. It's very valuable. So for someone in, in Kashmir who can't really grow anything else in the land up in the mountains... They'll grow saffron because it will grow, and it's a great great crop that earns a lot of money. But actually, when you put it into fertile soil in England, it suddenly it takes on the flavor of the soils, and, and it suddenly becomes an amazing flavor. And it's a lot sweeter than most saffron.
1: This must have been what folks in medieval England figured out. After all, saffron Walden was the center of all
0: things saffron for a couple hundred years. But then saffron growing and exporting died out. And we mean totally died out. No one in England was left growing saffron by the 19th century. Why?
2: Uh, Money, labour costs.
0: Dave explained, England industrialised in the 1800s. People could earn more working in those dark, satanic mills, the new factories and coal mines of the Industrial Revolution. They'd earn more than they could in the fields, even if those fields were filled with saffron.
2: Even if you go out the other side of the world and ship it over here, it ends up a lot cheaper than you can grow it here. Simple as that, I think. Yeah, very simple economics, yeah.
1: And today, it's still cheaper to grow saffron in Iran and import it into England than to grow it here. But um, Dave just said the economics don't make any sense. So why is he growing saffron?
2: That's a good question. Um, uh, uh, I wanted to grow something. I always have done. I mean, my family in Devon and Cornwall used to grow carnations.
1: And Dave was getting a little antsy in his day job.
2: After working in the industry, geophysics industry, for a while, I am. decided I wanted to grow something.
0: <laughs> Dave knew that saffron used to be grown in the area. I mean, the town is named after it. So he figured someone must still know how to do it, like maybe the guys at the agricultural college up the road.
2: And I phoned them up and got passed around from one or two people, and they all said to me, no, don't know, mate, no one knows anything about that. We don't grow that over here anymore, on. one of them said. We yeah, don't grow saffron over there. It died out hundreds of years ago. So, oh, OK, right. <laughs>
1: Dave had to kind of figure it out for himself. First, he had to track down saffron bulbs, which he did. Then he planted those bulbs. They're actually called saffron corms. He planted them in his back garden and, you know, the corms flowered. It was looking pretty good.
2: Um, And then next year when I went back, all the corms had disappeared. (laughs) So, and I still to this day, I don't know why. Dave's
0: leading theory on the great saffron disappearance is that the corms were eaten by animals.
2: But Saffron bulbs are supposed to be very nutty and very nice. Which is why all the animals love them. <laughs> it's a bit annoying. but
1: So we asked a commercial bulb grower for advice. The person didn't grow saffron, but did still have a recommendation for how to keep pesky animals away.
2: Oh, if you soak the bulbs in uh, paraffin, then the rats and stuff won't eat them because they don't like the taste.
1: Paraffin is kerosene. Soaking the bulbs in kerosene does not sound
2: great. So I tried an experimental patch of that. Didn't like the idea of it, but, you know, you've got to try these things. And, and the soil and everything I didn't like that so I did it in pots I think but anyway they that didn't work it didn't even grow it didn't even flower I don't think <laughs> obviously killed the bulb. So. Uh, and so it went on, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you slowly learn and by trial and error, really. Yeah.
0: Currently, Dave's precious saffron is protected from all would-be thieves by an electric fence. He swears it's not intended to shock humans, just those pesky rabbits.
1: If Dave is sounding a little nutty himself, well, he agrees. He's a little mad about saffron, but it really is kind of amazing how he's managed to read every random bit of information he can find about saffron growing. He's consulted with the they're experts in growing tulip bulbs.
0: It's kind of close. He even found a random box of medieval saffron information in the local library.
2: Oh, and it was called Crocus sativus, which is the Latin name for it. So well, just left me in there for a few hours with this box file, which had some clippings in it and stuff. But in there, I found a photocopy or something of a, of a medieval manuscript, which was, huh, well, medieval. It was about 1600 or 15 something.
0: The archival materials. Fortunately, confirmed most of Dave's own trial and error findings about how close together to plant the bulbs and how deep they should be in the soil, and all sorts of other things that nobody who was actually still alive in England seemed to know. Long story short, it's been a process. Dave started experimenting in his back garden 14 years ago, and it took him nearly a decade to get to the point where he could sell his saffron commercially. Last year, Dave grew a couple hundred grams of
1: saffron. I'm going to be honest, that doesn't sound like a huge amount, and it's not. He grew enough for about 200 packages that he sells. This year, he has more land and he's planted even more saffron bulbs, but Dave's English saffron operation is still pretty tiny. Iran sells about two tons of the stuff. Dave sold .0002 tons last year. No real competition yet. Dave hasn't totally given up his day job. He still works as a geophysicist.
0: Saffron only totally takes over his life a few times a year. Such as the harvest season. The saffron crocus starts flowering in late September and keeps going through to
2: early December. It's normally about six weeks, but it can be a bit longer. But it has a peak period of about 12 days where it goes absolutely mad. One field might produce nearly half a million flowers. Oh, it looks amazing, yeah. I mean, it's just purple every day. Even if you picked all the field so there's no flowers left at the end of the day, the next day you come back, it'll be full again, which is, well, either depressing or really great. It depends which way you look at it.
0: (laughs) Depressing because half a million flowers might be gorgeous to look at, but it also represents hours and hours and hours of back-breaking work.
2: I can pick about 300 an hour, but a a newbie croaker, we call them, C-R-O-K-E-R, oh, they wouldn't get anywhere near that, would they?
1: That's just the picking. They have to carefully remove the stigmas, too. If for some reason you're nearby during harvest season, you might be able to recognize the croakers, as they're called, by the color of their fingers.
2: Completely purple and yellow. So yellow where you've accidentally touched, because you're not supposed to touch that bit, obviously. Um, But then purple, because all the dye from the petals all leaks. So you have cool croaker fingers.
0: That part is not as pretty as it sounds. The purple stain makes the tip of the croaker's fingers look like they're in the final stages of dropping off from gangrene. But it's not all freaky fingers and lower back pain. There are some perks to the
2: job. The smell is the best smell you'll ever smell in your life. When you smell dry saffron, which we can do in a bit, um, it's obviously got its distinctive smell, and it's beautiful, and it's quite heady. We get actually our people get, um, you know, they get a bit intoxicated when they're packing saffron. You have to get fresh air every so often because it is a narcotic in a big quantities. So
1: <laughs> this is a fact, people. Dave is not making it up. Saffron can be a potent narcotic. A little expensive for a high, yes, but some scientists are studying its mood-boosting
0: effects in the lab. Weirder still, it turns out the medieval nuns were hooked on saffron back in the day. That's where we're going next, but first we want to tell you about a couple of our sponsors this episode. When it comes to bra shopping, it's all about finding the right fit for you. And there's only one lingerie brand that offers bras in sizes double A through G and half cup sizes. Third love. There
1: is some debate over who actually invented the bra cup letter system that we use today. Historians credit either William and Ida Rosenthal, the founders of the Maidenform company, with establishing the A B C D cup lettering system in the 1920s, or S H Camp and Co., who were the first to advertise a cup lettering system in the Corset and Underwear Review in February 1933. In either case, the letters weren't linked to actual measurements and took no notice at all of the size of your ribcage. It took another 50 years to standardize
0: that. Even today, most old-school bra brands carry 15 sizes, but 3rd Love has 60 sizes, including half cups. Right now, 3rd Love is offering Gastropod listeners 15% off your first order. To find the bra you've been waiting for, all you have to do is answer a few simple questions from 3rd Love's Fit Finder quiz. It takes 60 seconds, and you can do it all from the comfort of of home. Try a Third Love bra. It's so comfortable, you might forget you're wearing it. And if you don't agree, returns and exchanges are always easy and free. Go to thirdlove.com/gastropod now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash gastropod.
1: At the beginning of the year, we all think about ways to better ourselves, learn new things. One great way to do that is by watching and listening to The Great Courses Plus. With The Great Courses Plus, you get unlimited access to over 8,500 different lectures presented by some of the world's leading professors and experts. And as one of our listeners, you can start enjoying The
0: Great Courses Plus for free. For example, check out their course on food, science, and the human body. Award-winning anthropologist Alyssa Crittenden compares the current paleo diet fad to what our actual ancestors ate, and explores the 1,900 edible insect species on the planet, which 2 billion people eat as part of their regular diet. There's even an entire episode on how the spice trade has shaped history. You can watch this or any of their courses from your TV, laptop, tablet, or smartphone, or listen along with the Great Courses Plus app. Right now, as one of our listeners, you'll get a free
1: trial to enjoy The Great Courses Plus, this lecture and more than 8,500 more. But you'll need to sign up through our special URL. Start your free trial by signing up at thegreatcoursesplus.com gastropod. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com gastropod.
0: Finally, have you ever wondered about the stories behind the stories you read in magazines or hear on podcasts like ours? We're fans of The Open Notebook, a nonprofit publication that peeks behind the curtain to show how great science writers find their ideas, how they go about reporting and writing them, and the hundreds of decisions that go into crafting the kinds of stories that people like us and you love. The Open Notebook has even talked to the two of
1: us about how we make Gastropod. If you geek out on director's cuts or other behind-the-scenes type of stuff, if you're a journalist looking to polish your skills, or even if you're a scientist who wants to get better at communicating your work, check out theopennotebook.com.
0: After we'd walked the saffron fields with Dave, he took us to his saffron stash.
2: So it's all packed up, really, del- really lovely. <laughs> yeah, this is a traditional saffron <laughs> chest. Well, is it? My saffron never sees the light of day until it's sold. Oh my gosh! you oh smell it? Gosh. And that's wrapped, wow. so it's not even. You're not smelling loose saffron, do you? Oh. I reckon
1: it. that would make me pretty sprightly. Oh wow! Yeah. Am excellent. I going to get intoxicated if I keep smelling yes. it? Yes. Okay. Well, that's
2: good. double packed in bags, so that's. And that hasn't been opened, it's so in, no, it's in this bag, in and then the it's box. another bag, it's and zip then lock then bags, lock bags, and then this bag, and then this thing, which is airtight, and it's still, and it's still so, still so strong.
0: <gasps> oh my god!
1: Oh, and the honey that you're, t- I can, I you, totally you smell that honey it. scent. Yeah.
2: So Cynthia afternoon. and I
0: wanted to sit and sniff Dave's saffron all day. That's really intense. I'm, I'm just going to
1: sit here. You Can you just leave me here with some saffron to keep smelling?
0: So we wanted to know what exactly is behind saffron's amazing, happiness-inducing smell.
6: The main constituents in um, saffron are what we call kind of the saffronol. There's uh, crocetin and, and crocin, the uh, compounds in um, saffron that have been believed to kind of have the antidepressant effects. So those components seem to be the most important bits, and and they're responsible for the color and the flavor and and the taste.
1: Adrian Lopresti is a clinical psychologist and researcher at Murdoch University in Perth, Australia, and he got interested in saffron.
6: because My area of interest is looking at lifestyle and uh, nutritional treatments for mental health disorders. Um, And so that's when I saw some of the research with regards to saffron.
0: Pat Willard, she's the author of Secrets of Saffron, she told us that saffron has a long history of being used as a medicine for all sorts of things, but mostly
4: as a remedy against melancholy. If you were just terribly depressed, you would get these, they used to make these little pills for it that was saffron and mixed with molasses. So, you know, the uh, ancient kind of Prozac.
1: These descriptions of medieval Prozac have inspired quite a few scientists today. Adrian reviewed a dozen scientific studies on saffron's antidepressant effects,
6: and uh, the researchers showed compared to placebo, they were all very very positive. So it was more effective than a placebo. And then there was other studies comparing it to two antidepressants, and. Uh, Those ones were really interesting. And again, they were very positive. So what was found was that they were as effective as the antidepressants. Um, Worked just as well, just as quickly, but with less side effects.
0: But Adrian says no one knows exactly how saffron works, although there are several potential ways it could be boosting your mood. So one way is that inflammation in your body seems to break down serotonin. You've probably heard of serotonin. It's a chemical that nerve cells release. And one of the things it does is transmit messages in your brain. Many common antidepressants work by boosting serotonin uptake. There is a lot of debate about what causes depression and the effects
1: of different chemical levels in the brain. But Adrian mentioned three major compounds in saffron, the ones that make saffron smell so good. Those also are really great at reducing inflammation, which might then help
0: boost serotonin. But there's more. There are other chemicals in saffron that seem to encourage the neurons in your brain to grow. And growing neurons can apparently also boost your mood.
6: Yeah, and while I talk about crocin and crozitin and saffronol, there's other constituents within saffron that uh, probably impact on mood, but they just haven't been investigated yet. And to really try to understand how they all kind of work together, uh, still early days yet.
1: But some of these compounds, like all good things, they can be toxic at high doses.
6: There is the danger of kind of consuming too much. I think you need to have about... Uh, I think it's about five grams, which is, uh, you know, you'd probably go broke before you, you could uh, overdose on that, that amount of uh, saffron. So
0: The other thing, of course, is like all plant-derived medicines, the potency of each chemical in each particular flower, that will vary. So Adrian always uses saffron extract, standardized in capsule form in his research. There are already antidepressants on the
1: market, and many people use them to help treat depression. So why bother? Adrian says one of the main reasons he's excited about saffron is that it doesn't appear to have any major side effects, and the
0: pharma antidepressants often do. And then there are people who don't want to take pharmaceuticals and would be more open to a plant-derived drug. Adrian's next study is actually looking at the effectiveness of saffron as an antidepressant in teens for exactly this reason. There are parents who don't want to have their kids on conventional pharmaceutical antidepressants. Adrian told us about a
1: bunch of studies he still wants to do, but he feels pretty good about saffron. Plus, at the levels that he's studying, you can even afford it.
6: So, yeah. I'd be quite confident now to recommend it as a uh, antidepressant for people with mild to moderate depression um, who may be reluctant to take pharmaceuticals. Uh, so I think there's enough evidence out there to use it as a, as a treatment.
0: Adrian thinks that future research is only going to confirm saffron's potency. There are some promising animal studies already that show that saffron boosts dopamine too, the feel good neurotransmitter.
6: So yeah, possibly taking saffron and, and maybe higher doses can can potentially really lift moods.
1: And this ability of saffron to make people perky, that also has a long history. Apparently, some women in medieval Europe
7: were really getting their spirits lifted by saffron. Each nun must have had a little stash of saffron, or I don't know how they kept it, just to, you know, take it if you needed it as a stimulant. I always compare it with a cup of coffee that they didn't have. So perhaps it was... Roughly their equivalent to that.
0: That is Volker Scheer. He's a musicologist in the Medieval Studies Department at Arizona State University.
7: And one of my topics is medieval nuns, late medieval nuns. And that's how I got into saffron.
1: About 20 years ago, Volker and one of his colleagues discovered a cache of hidden, never-before-seen letters from a woman who joined a nunnery in Bavaria in 1516.
7: Her name is Katharina Lemmel. She was from Nuremberg, entered the monastery of Mayingen in the Rees, and she was a businesswoman in her first life. And she came from a family that traded in saffron.
0: In fact, her family was one of just a handful that controlled the saffron trade in Europe. And Katerina's letters are full of saffron. She writes to her cousin Hans, who ran the family business.
7: And she orders a huge amount of saffron sometimes like a kilo a year for the monastery.
1: That is a crazy amount of saffron. Volker says in today's money, it would have been about ten to $15,000 worth. And there were only 50 or 60 nuns living there.
7: And one of the things she writes is that they need saffron during Lent. And she writes pretty much verbatim that when they have to sing and pray a lot, they need saffron to... Yeah, make it easier for them.
0: The thing you need to understand about medieval nuns is that they weren't just singing and chanting and praying for fun, or even just for their personal salvation. It was their job. They were being paid to sing and pray for hours and hours a day and even through the
7: night. You were supposed to sing as a nun for everyone, for society, for donors, for deceased, and you were a professional singer, you were a professional prayer.
1: The donors and the nuns both seemed to believe that taking a pinch of saffron as they sang helped them to sing longer and more intensely.
7: But to be
0: fair, it wasn't just saffron. The other thing you have to understand about medieval nuns is that they were off their heads on a whole bunch of different substances.
7: I mean, you have to see that nuns mainly drank alcohol, like everybody in the Middle Ages. So per day, they had typically two, three liters of beer or wine, depending on where they were. Um, They ate other active ingredients, such as nutmeg. Higher quantities of nutmeg will also have some effect on you. Um, They might have eaten hemp soup in addition, and they consumed saffron. So it was quite a mix of uh, things, and I always call it like singing under the influence.
1: So these nuns might have been, you know, pretty high as they were singing. And now imagine the scene in the cloister.
7: If you ever sang in a choir, you know that standing together with many other people and singing communally and loud, and if it's good music, it's getting better. You can't do that alone and you get feedback at that moment and you feel great, you feel good. Um, It does have an effect. And also the surrounding you are in has an effect. Uh, in monasteries, you sang at times when it was pitch dark outside, like when they got you up in the middle of the night to sing the night service. Um, it was the flickering of candles. And when you walk the cloister and you sing as a group, uh, you walk synchronized, you sing synchronized, you sync yourself with a group and the acoustic changes, and it's, it's awesome. It's really something that was very, very impressive.
0: Of course, we'll never really know how it felt to be a medieval nun, high on saffron and a variety of other psychoactive substances, fasting and chanting in the dark. But Volker was curious. He wanted to see how this medley would affect a group of contemporary choristers. He got as far as asking their
7: musical director. but He uh, declined. He thought that was a little too much <laughs> to try out.
1: Volker told us the nuns weren't just getting high on all that saffron. They did use it in the kitchen, too. Katerina's letters included mentions of saffron soup. Saffron rice and porridge were also really common at the time. So they were enjoying the flavor of saffron
0: as well. This use of saffron to color rice in a paella or a risotto or even just in a broth, it's still common in continental Europe today. But not in England, where much of Europe's saffron was once grown. Like we said, saffron Walden was once the centre of saffron production in the world. But somehow that's left almost no trace in my national cuisine.
2: There are recipes, if you look in the text, I mean, there are Easter cakes made with saffron and stuff, but just people have lost the, you know, how to do it.
1: Dave's trying to reintroduce saffron to the British diet, and not just in Mediterranean food like paella. He's been working with a local distiller to make saffron gin. It's quite tasty. And a local chocolatier in Saffron Walden uses threads of Dave's saffron in one of their most popular
0: truffles. Which we can report is also very delicious. But the main thing that Dave wants British people to understand is not to be afraid of saffron. You don't have to take out an overdraft and throw giant handfuls of saffron into a dish in order to savour its unique taste. Instead, he says, just take a few threads and
2: infuse them properly. The best way of doing it, really, I suppose, is to put it in a liquid which is warm or hot, not boiling, but just off.
1: It doesn't have to be water. In fact, something with fat like oil or cream is better because it keeps infusing after it cools down. Water doesn't work quite as well. Alcohol will work too.
2: The best way to do it, which I've never seen anyone else saying this, but it's definitely true, is to put it in a ramekin and infuse it in a very small amount of liquid. And you'll get a lovely colour almost immediately coming out. Uh, And then cover that with a saucer and uh, just leave it, basically. Well, at least two hours, preferably overnight.
0: That way, Dave says, you extract all of the flavour and you don't lose any of the scent. By the end, the threads should just be a pale, ghostly white. Dave says you can infuse cream and then pour it over fish right
1: before you serve it. That's one of his favorite dishes. Or make
0: your own saffron-infused oil to drizzle
1: over all sorts of things. I have to say, I'd never been remotely interested in cooking with saffron before this episode. It seemed like something expensive that wasn't so transformative. But now I've smelled it and practically gotten high on the amazing scent and really tasted it in a more simple dish where the saffron flavor shines through. I can tell you, it is is worth it. A simple saffron
0: risotto is amazing. I'm converted. I was already a fan of saffron. It's this grassy kind of caramel flavor that you just can't get from anything else. But what I'm excited about is this saffron revival. Dave's insane quest to bring saffron back to England has already inspired a couple of other growers. And England isn't the only slightly
1: surprising hotspot for saffron. Earlier in the show, you heard from Margaret Skinner. She runs an ag lab at the University of Vermont. They're now growing saffron there. It all started a few years ago. Arash al Egalobe Bahani moved to Burlington from Iran.
5: And I could realize Vermont is really cold and is not a comfortable place to produce some conventional crop over the winter. And also, I knew that this crop has a good resistance to the cold weather because we have some cold nights in deserts in Iran. So the clue comes from that point.
0: So over coffee, Arash suggested to Margaret that maybe saffron would grow in Vermont. And I'd have to
3: admit, somewhat embarrassingly, that my first response was that's a crazy, well, that's a stupid idea. But then I went back into my office and I thought about it a little bit more. And I, we do uh, other research, working with growers on production of vegetables in high tunnels. And it was sort of then that I started thinking, hmm, maybe saffron is something that could be integrated into current uh, cultural practices
0: And that's sort of where it took off from there. Margaret and Arash have been trialing their New England saffron for a couple of years now. And their yields are actually
1: really good. And growing saffron could make economic sense for Vermont farmers, too. It blooms in the fall and early winter when they're basically done harvesting other crops. The
3: tomatoes are finished. Um, They might still have some, you know, winter squash or some of those things. But most of the field work is done. And So in many
0: respects, that makes it ideal. And of course, saffron sells for a lot more money than winter squash.
3: And I'm not saying that saffron is going to be a golden goose for them, but it may be something that will contribute
0: to the overall economic viability of these small farms. So yeah, growing and harvesting saffron is still a lot of work. But for Dave in England and Margaret and Arash in Vermont, the benefits are worth it. And anyway, Arash told us it's not really all that bad.
5: Whenever you have interact with beautiful, beautiful flower with this really nice smell, I think it's not really difficult. So uh, it's a beautiful job. It's a nice thing to do. Arash actually sent us some recordings this fall when
1: he harvested those purple fields of saffron. Stick around and you'll hear him after the credits.
0: When it comes to bra shopping, it's all about finding the right fit for you. And there's only one lingerie brand that offers bras in sizes AA through G and half cup sizes, Third Love. Find your perfect fitting bra today. Go to thirdlove.com gastropod and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com gastropod Third love slash
1: gastropod. Ready for delivery that exceeds your expectations? Try Caviar. Caviar delivers the best food from your favorite local restaurants. More menus, easy ordering, fast delivery. Get the best restaurants delivered. Order on the Caviar app or online at caviar.com. Order today and pay no delivery fee on your first order. Plus take $10 off your first order of
0: $30 or more with code gastropod. Huge thanks this episode to David Smale of English Saffron. We've got links and photos of him and his saffron Field. Online, as well as how to get hold of his saffron and his saffron gin for yourself. Thanks also to Pat Willard, author of Secrets of Saffron, to Adrian Lopresti, clinical psychologist and researcher at Murdoch University in Perth, and to Volker Shear, musicologist and medievalist at Arizona State University. We've got links to their books and papers on our site, too. This episode, we
1: want to personally thank our newest supporters at the $10 per episode or more level. Ali Punzalan, Blanche Taysier, Tanya Hansen, Christian Driesen, who listens while he trains for the AIDS lifecycle race, and Patrick Daly, who uses our episodes in his teaching syllabus. We love you very, very, very much, and we're sorry if we mangled your names. If you're a sustaining supporter of the show, that's $9 a month on our website or $5 an episode through Patreon. Look forward to a super cool newsletter of extras, including the contemporary drink that Volker Scheer recommends trying to
0: get a sense of how those medieval nuns might have felt. And finally, thanks to Margaret Skinner and Arash Al-Egalo Babahani of the University of Vermont. We'll leave you today with Arash and his wife, Agreen Dovari, harvesting saffron flowers in the high tunnel, plucking out the stigma, and then drying them in the oven.
4: Good morning, it's Monday morning. We are at Saffron Research Center and heading up to the Saffron High Tunnel to pick up uh, the flowers.
5: Okay, we are in the Saffron High Tunnel now. Just few flowers we have because it's like the blooming season is getting over. And so we are going to pick some of those flowers right now.
4: The next step is to separate the yellow stamen from the red stigma and purple petals of the flowers. Now is the dehydration process. We uh, put the stamen and stigma separately on some trays that we already prepared for this purpose. And then we are going to put those tray in the oven for one hour.